Welcome, everyone. My name is Julene Jackson. I'm the National Vice President for Moms for America over Cottage Meetings. Moms for America, the whole premise is that liberty begins at home. When mother knows and understands and honors and reveres the Constitution and the stories of America and our founding father and founding mothers, her children will know. And tonight, when mama and dad know, then the family will know. As I mentioned, I oversee the Cottage Meeting Project for Moms for America. And Cottage Meetings are just basically study groups of mamas meeting together in homes to learn these principles of liberty and freedom. And then inevitably, when a mother learns certain uh, things, it's so natural for her to go home and to teach her mother, her children and her grandchildren. So I have attended or taught cottage meetings for the last 13 years, and I've seen a transformation of what it did to me to learn these precepts and concepts of liberty and freedom and to teach them to my children. And then I came home and began to teach them in our devotional and, and Al, you know, began to learn along with me through the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies. And then as Al and I learned these things, we began to work together as united team and our children could see that, you know, not this wasn't just a thing that mom was into, that mom and dad were lockstep. And it became a real force for good in our family. And it's been fun to see how our kids growing up in a home where mom and dad revered and, and loved these things, how the kids are starting to do unusual and wonderful things as they're spreading their wings. We have five kids, three of them live um, on their own, going to college and working professionally when is married. And so I'm so grateful. Uh, a year ago, we started teaching our cottage meeting lessons. We have 12 introductory lessons in the cottage meeting manual. And we began to teach them during the summer of COVID last year. And so they're all online. If, if a mom ever would want to start a cottage meeting, I would recommend using these 12 introductory lessons first. And so we just kept up teaching these cottage meetings online. And then Cherie, our wonderful um, Moms for America in Utah, Cherie said, Jolene, would you ever be willing to teach a cottage meeting um, for family with husband and wife? And Al and I have taught these Healing of America seminars that we're going to go through the next 15 weeks over the last few years. And so thank you, sweetheart. I asked him if he'd be willing uh, to stay up every Thursday night till 930 and teach these lessons with me. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun uh, to prepare and to talk about these things throughout the week. And so remember how last week we talked uh, just for a moment, Ted Cruz put this idea in my mind when we heard him speak in um, San Antonio, Texas last week about being a happy warrior, that there are many people right now in this country that are angry and they're harsh. And he called them soulless stormtroopers. You know, they don't ask questions. They just do what they're told. This whole idea of doing something for the collective good. Uh, it just, he said, saps the human spirit. And he said, we're going to have to warrior, but we can be hopeful and we can be happy warriors. And we're, we're, we're happy warriors when we're rooted in truth and in God and a love of freedom. And that's who we studied last week. Little Joan of Arc, who at 13 was called a God to save her country, France. And 350 years later, France would come to the aid of America 
when we had been fighting the Revolutionary War for eight years and both sides were weary and the French fleet came and saved us in that last battle of Yorktown and we won that Revolutionary War, which is going to lead up to uh, declaring our independence, which we will study today. And, and we see another happy warrior with Christopher Columbus that knew he had been called a God to go discover this new world. And then 120 years after Christopher Columbus, our little pilgrims, that, you know, not really knowing what their future lie, but they knew that they needed to come to this new world and, and their great efforts and work would be a part of securing the Republic that we have today. So over the course of 140 years from when those pilgrims first landed in Plymouth in 1620 to about 1760, where we're going to pick up today, it, it has been said about one in every four Englishmen were coming, were migrating to this new world because they were fleeing the oppression of this kingly harsh government that they were experiencing in England. And so we're gonna pick up today in um, seminar one. I hope everyone got your books, God's Hand and Building of America. We're on section two today. We're picking up in 1760 where King George III is the first king of that English century that was not only born in England, but was educated in England, spoke English perfectly, that he was considered a true patriot king because most of the kings over the last century had been German bred and then brought together through marital arrangements. And so, for this reason, King George III was very popular amongst the people in England, but his policies began to antagonize the American colonists that were had been in this new world now for about 120, 30 years. It's interesting to note that King George had 15 children, King George III. He was a good moral man. And uh, towards the end of his life though, he actually, went insane. And I've heard many people maybe attribute those 15 kids. I have five and sometimes I think I'm going insane, but he had a large uh, posterity and he was beginning to enact strict um, rules and, and acts. And in 1760, he directed something called the Navigation Act, which meant that he wasn't going to allow the English or the Americans to purchase any foreign goods. He kind of wanted that idea to buy English, to keep our money at home. And so what resulted, of course, was smuggling, both in England and here in the Americas. And, and the king, you know, to, to ward that off, he was allowing military officers to go into private homes and businesses looking and searching for these smuggled goods. And then in 1763, the king forbade the colonists to uh, cross the mountains and begin to settle into the Ohio Valley. And, and some of the colonists had already done this and they defied the act, but this kind of oversight began to, uh, the, there was a growing resentment amongst the colonists. And then in 1765, uh, the king had 
Parliament passed the Stamp Act. And the colonists said, wait a minute, this feels like taxation without representation. No one is representing our needs and wants uh, back in England in the Parliament. And the Stamp Act was, was basically just any printed materials, legal documents, magazines, newspapers had to be produced on a stamp paper that was going to be produced in London. So the Stamp Act was a form of a tax. And so the people, the, the colonists were not happy with this. So the King George III repealed the Stamp Act, but then he would go on to pass a, another tax program, so to speak, by the name of a Townsend Act in 1767. And that was uh, taxes on glass and lead and paint and tea and paper. And then the king at this point, in order uh, you know, to enforce all these taxes, he's now imposing upon the colonists, regiments of British troops were now arriving to enforce this tax collection. And so the king passed a quartering act uh, around 1767, which would acquire, uh, require the colonists to have to take in the British soldiers and give them room and board free of charge. And so, as you can see, during this period of 1760 to 1775, or this 15-year period, the situation in America was really ripening um, that was going to, to lead to uh, violence in America. So in 1770, I'm sure you've heard of the Boston Massacre. Now at this point in Boston, there were about 20,000 colonists that were living there. And there were, excuse me, there were 16,000 colonists that were living in Boston at this time in 1770. And um, about 2,000 British troops were there. And so one cold day in March, it was still kind of wintry, a crowd of 300 men and boys, colonists had gathered in downtown Boston and they began to provoke the British uh, uh, troops that were there. And they began to throw snowballs and, and some of these snowballs had rocks in them and other objects at the British soldiers. And so what did the soldiers do eventually? But they fired into the crowd and five colonists were, uh, were killed, died uh, during that, uh, that um, conflict called the Boston Massacre. So imagine all the depictions and reports and maybe even some of the spin and propaganda that heightened the tension through the 13 colonists as they heard about this uh, violent incident in uh, Boston. And then a few years pass and um, uh, to add injury to insult, the, the king is now putting a tax on all their tea and not allowing any other tea from any other country obviously to come in. And what most of the colonies did is just refuse to unload the tea and sent those ships back to England but Boston, um, they were not allowed, uh, the, the governor at the time uh, in Massachusetts would not allow the tea ships to be sent back and the colonists would not unload the tea. And so in December of um, 1773, uh, a group of bandits dressed up as Indians, provocateurs and patriots as they're known, led by Samuel Adams. And this group of men that went on this tea ship in the harbor of Boston and 
emptied all the tea into the harbor. They called themselves the Sons of Liberty. And Samuel Adams, Al will talk about him in just a moment, but he really was known as the father of the Revolutionary War. And many say we might not have even had a war if it had not been for the work of Samuel Adams. He was a great freedom fighter, really the ultimate patriot. And Samuel Adams, um, if you don't know, uh, was the second cousin to John Adams, who would go on to become the second president of the United States. So Al, um, at this point, uh, when King George heard of these uh, this tea party uh, ex escapade in Boston, Massachusetts, he closed the Boston Harbor. He was swift and he was vengeful. He put the city under martial law, King George III. He put a military governor in charge of Massachusetts, General Thomas Gage. He suspended the charter of Massachusetts in any elected assemblies. He suspended all town halls and uh, he threatened any serious offenders uh, to this order would be held on trial in England. And what he did became known as the intolerable acts and the following year, the first Continental Congress was going to convene in the year of 1774 to forestall the outbreak of this inevitable war because the colonists were determined now to stand up for their rights and a new nation is about to be born. So Al is going to teach us the next uh, three little sections here. Okay, great, thanks Julene. So we're going to talk about section two, the birth of a nation. So in a sense, the birth of America took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, specifically the Pennsylvania State House. And as we all know, the Declaration of Independence was debated and adopted there in 1776. And on September 17, 1787, the Constitution of the United States was signed very significant place in our history. So let me show you all a picture. I can share my screen here of, let's see, that's the inside. So there's Alvin, <laughs> our, what number is he in the, he in is, the line? What, what is he? He's number four? He's number Four? Yeah, no, no, four. Five? five, number five. Okay. <laughs> so Alvin is quite little there. He's 6'4 now and he's uh, 17 years old. But there is the room where they've recreated in the Pennsylvania State House where they debated the constitutional. That's where the Constitutional Convention took place. And as you see back here is the chair where George Washington would have sat, would have sat. And then here is the outside of the building. There's Giulini and some of our kids, friend of ours. And there's a statue of George Washington right there in front of that building. And if you have not had a chance to go to Philadelphia, I would recommend it because they've got tours all day and it's a really cool place. So if you were to ask, whose eyes would you have liked to have seen those two historic events take place? Most people would probably choose George Washington, Ben Franklin, maybe John Adams, or even James Madison. But the person that Julene just referred to who saw the absolute necessity of American freedom was Samuel Adams. So let's get acquainted with him as he's one of the great 
first great freedom fighters. And as Julian indicated, Samuel was born in 1722, which made him 10 years older than George Washington, but 16 years younger than Ben Franklin. And he was the second cousin of John Adams. He entered Harvard, Harvard University, Harvard College at that time though, at the age of 14 and graduated with a master's degree at age 21. Pretty incredible. And with that degree, he probably could have gone on to become a man of great wealth, but instead devoted his life to the freedom fight. And we know people in our own sphere of influence, people around us, when you engage in the freedom fight, you're not going to make a whole lot of money. So if you want to be rich, go somewhere else. But this is a fight not for the faint of heart. And so Samuel Adams was known as the father of the revolution. So there are four founders of note, and you might want to put this in your note. So Samuel Adams was known as the father of the revolution. George Washington, the father of the country. James Madison, the father of the Constitution. And Ben Franklin, who was the father of morality. He was known as the golden patriot. And when we get into seminar three, we'll talk into some detail about how a lot of money was spent going after the character of Ben Franklin and all the founders. I believe more money was spent trying to disparage Ben Franklin than all the founders put together because he was known as the father of morality. And so I would recommend you all get the book, The Real Ben Franklin, because that tells the, the true story of him from his own words and accounts and people who knew him. But Ben Franklin was an incredible individual because if you can't destroy the doctrine, then you go after the personality. So let's jump over to section three, changes in loyalty. So during the first 15 years of King George's reign, the people met his abuses with protests and petitions, all to no avail, of course, as from April 1775 to April 1776, several events occurred which destroyed the people's feeling of loyalty and affection for the king. And just remember, they, they are British subjects and one in four came to America, but that didn't mean that they lost their love and loyalty to the crown because that's all they knew. So we had in April 19, 1775, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which took place in Massachusetts which is in the Northeast. So on the night of April 18th, hundreds of British troops marched from Boston to Concord in order to seize an arms cache. Paul Revere, whom we all know well, and others sounded the alarm and the colonial Minutemen at that time mobilized to intercept the Redcoats. On April 19th that morning, 700 British troops arrived in Lexington to face only 77 militiamen or Minutemen. Of course, they were ordered to disperse. A shot rang out and to this day, no one knows who fired the first shot. So when the smoke cleared, unfortunately, eight militiamen lay dead and nine were injured. It's so interesting when the powers that be, when the central government want to control the people, the first thing they do is go after their arms. They take away their arms. Are we seeing any of that today? Or an attempt to anyway. So the British continued on 
after leaving Lexington to go to Concord to search for more arms, not realizing that the vast majority of the guns had already been relocated. So some 2,000 Americans militiamen converged onto the British and 250 Redcoats were killed and 95 Americans were killed in that battle. And so you go on to number two here in our booklet, it talks about 500 Americans that were killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill that was on June 17, 1775. And the British lost about a 1,000 soldiers in that conflict. And so down in number four in our booklet, on July 3rd, 1775, George Washington becomes a Supreme Commander of the Continental Army. And he served in this capacity with zero compensation. The only thing he got paid for were his expenses. So let me tell you a little bit about who makes up the Continental Army. So soldiers were volunteers agreeing to serve standard enlistment periods of one to three years. Early in the war, the enlistment periods were shorter as the Congress was very fearful that the Army would evolve into a permanent one. And if you go back to what Jalene had highlighted, the founders, based on their experience with, the Brit with Great Britain, were very fearful of a standing army because of the abuses they placed upon the people, the courting of soldiers and, and illegal search and seizures. A lot of those experiences, which we'll talk about in seminar two, highlight what really went into the constitution, specifically the Bill of Rights because of those experiences. So members of the Revolutionary Army were motivated to volunteer by specific contracts that promise bounty money, regular pay at good wages, food, clothing, medical care, companionship, and the promise of land ownership after the war. The army never had more than 17,000 men because constant turnover was, was a problem. 17,000 men throughout the Revolutionary War that ended in 1783, a miracle that they were able to win. So as, uh, as we remember back to the Vietnam War and other wars that Americans have fought, most of the troops are made up of working class individuals or minority groups. So a large majority of the army were made up of Irish immigrants, German Im immigrants, and African-Americans, believe it or not. The Continental Army, army was actually, was racially integrated as approximately 6,600 people of color served. I did not know that until I did some research. So on August 23rd, 1775, King George officially labeled the insurrection as a rebellion and that the rebel leaders were to be arrested as traitors and brought to justice, which meant execution. It's interesting to note what happened on January 6th is called it an insurrection. An insurrection doesn't start and end the same day. An insurrection began in August 23rd, 1775. It went all the way to 1783. So an early Christmas present for the colonists on December 22nd, 1775, the king issued an even harsher proclamation which virtually abolished the colonist status as British subjects and that all Americans would be treated as enemies. So he had ample opportunity through the petitions and the letters from the people that he was abusing to change his ways and he decided not to do that. 
So let's go to section four, the fateful year of 1776. Now, of course, when we look at 1776, we only think of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Must have been a great year, fireworks, awesome, wonderful. But that was the only bright spot of the year as the colonists, colonists experienced one setback after another. And few knew about the Revolutionary War efforts in Canada which is really interesting to note that a lot of what took place took place in Canada and that America lost its campaign in Canada. So after camp capturing the city of Montreal, the Americans lost the Battle of Quebec. And when a, within a few months, all American forces had retreated from Canada to rejoin Washington in the lower 13 states. So with that being said, I'm going to now turn the time back over to Julene to talk to you all about one of our most favorite people, and that is Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, sweetheart. So, you know, just like Al said, 1776 is, has gone on throughout our American history as a glorious time of independence. But it was, if you would have lived at that time, I think that's probably the last way they would have described that fateful year of 1776, because it often seems that at these seasons and times of our life, when we're experiencing just almost insurmountable odds or trials or challenges, is if, if we can walk through these kind of dark seasons of our life, we'll realize you know, that from our greatest tests and trials came our greatest long-term victories. But, you know, not only was this a difficult year for all the, all the colonies, but particularly 1776 was going to be a difficult year for Thomas Jefferson. You know, Thomas Jefferson, um, so we're on, on part five, the genius of Thomas Jefferson. It's like he almost instinctively knew that America was going to win this war and that we were going to be made free from British rule, but he was afraid that we would not know what to do once we got our freedom. And so he wanted the Virginia constitution to be an example and a model to the other states. Now he, through his studies, had already discovered some basic success formulas that he wanted to incorporate into the constitution. But I think he underestimated how hard it was going to be to, to get other people to accept these ideas. You know, out of all the founding fathers, he was probably the best prepared to launch this this campaign um, with his educational background being just remarkable, um, for, certainly in modern standard times, but back then just astounding. By the age uh, of nine, he was studying Latin, Greek, French. Now his daddy died at 14, just like George Washington. Both of they lost their fathers as young boys and they came from large homes where their mothers just kind of had to rise up and lead out, uh, lead out the family with all these children. But education was highly valued uh, in his family. And so he studied on his own uh, Latin, Greek, French as a young boy. And then at the age of 16, he went off to the College of William and Mary. Now, William and Mary were the reigning monarchs 
uh, at that time or had been previously in, in England. So the College of William and Mary still exists today. It's the second oldest university in America founded in 1693. Al and I uh, and our family just a few years ago lived a half a mile from William and Mary. We lived in that colonial Williamsburg area that has been um, completely recreated uh, to, to replicate the times of the revolutionary uh, period from about 1770 to 1780. And so, I, I mean, almost every day we would walk down to Colonial Williamsburg and walk on that campus where Thomas Jefferson, it only took him two years to graduate from college. And then for the next five years from about 18 to I guess, what, 23, he studied law under George Wythe. And George Wythe would be would go on to become known as the first law professor of America. And George Wythe was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And if you go to Colonial Williamsburg today, they have actually recreated where the House of Burgess was and, and the governor's palace and the Capitol. And George Wythe's home is, is that one of the original Yes. dwellings I think one of the, the, the structure yeah. still still stands I'm sure they had to do a little bit of repair I to show them the picture repair job yeah George, the George Wythe home where George Wash where Thomas Jefferson studied law for five years is my most favorite every time we go to the George Wythe home I'm like honey snap a picture of me because mm -hmm. there's this spirit about that home and they 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 decorated it so beautifully the colors inside that would have been depictive of that time period and they there there's the little study uh, with little instruments that um uh was in that room that george washington i keep saying george washington thomas jefferson studied with george with and so put that on your bucket list to go to Colonial Williamsburg and go to that George Wythe home. And so it's said that he studied for five years, 12 to 14 hours a day, Thomas Jefferson. And he would break up his studies during the day by going on two and three mile walks and runs. And I read somewhere that he would memorize during those little break periods when he was out walking or running. And I, a few years ago when I learned that, I thought I'm gonna memorize. So I take our doggy for a walk every day. And for years I have memorized, I memorized parts of the declaration, parts of um, the seven articles, the 27 amendments, the 28 principles and the 5,000 year leap. So I hope Thomas Jefferson would be happy to know through his good example, what a, what a great thing to do when you go on a walk is to just memorize maybe one little principle of liberty or something. And so as a summary, he gained proficiency in five languages. He studied Roman classics, Greek classics, European history. He also um, carefully studied the Old and New Testament. Now, modern day historians say that Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He didn't believe in God. There is a wonderful book called the, the Jefferson Bible. And what Jefferson did when he was alive is he pulled out all the stories and the parables and the actual quotes of Jesus Christ. And he took a white piece of paper and he cut them and he, and he um, cut them out in French, Greek, Latin, and English so he could compare 
the words in the different languages. And then he would fold them and put them in his front pocket next to his heart. And he would actually go on to bind that little uh, Bible. And he called it the Jefferson Bible, the life and morals of Jesus Christ. And I would recommend getting this book. The first part of the book talks about his feelings about God. He says, I am a true Christian. Beautiful quotes in here. Uh, and it's certainly a different depiction of Thomas Jefferson and his spirituality and his belief in God and Jesus Christ than you get from modern day historians. So he also, while he was studying the Bible in ancient Israel, he made an astonishing discovery. And we talked a little bit about this last week. He saw that at the time that the Israelites were coming out of Israel and Moses began to, you know, assign captains of tens and, and 50s and hundreds and thousands. And it was like the first form of representative government and Moses would handle the difficult problems. He, he saw that when the Israelites practiced this most efficient form of representative government, they were successful, successful. And he called it this fixed pattern of constitutional principles. They, they flourished. But when they drifted from it, disaster overtook them. And so he began to, Thomas Jefferson, refer to this pattern that he saw in uh, Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy as ancient principles. And he would actually go on to embed these ancient principles within the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson was also surprised as he studied history, um, European history, that the Anglo-Saxons, remember we believe that the Anglo-Saxons were descendants of the lost uh, scattered tribes uh, of Israel, that they also in their history um, were aware of these ancient pr principles and followed a pattern almost identical to that which was found amongst the Israelites. And Jefferson also in his studies um, studied thoroughly about that thousand year period of British history uh, from about um, the time the Magna Carta was given, the Magnificent Charter, and then the Petition of Writs in the 1600s, the Bill of Rights, the Habeas Corpus, Corpus, all these documents uh, were coming forth during this British period. And he was going to pull phrases and statements, freedom uh, statements, and, and put them into the Declaration of Independence as well. So during these intensive years of study of Jefferson, someone made a uh, the notation about uh, Jefferson, it said, when he spoke of law, I thought he was a lawyer. When he talked about mechanics, I was sure he was an engineer. When he got into medicine, it was evident he must be a physician. When he discussed theology, I was convinced he was a clergyman. And when he talked of literature, I made up my mind that I had run up against a college professor who knew everything. And so, you know, he certainly was a man that was born for a time such as this, just as we think of little Esther in the Old Testament. You can see how God really rose Thomas Jefferson up to do what he was going to be asked to do to write this Declaration of Independence. So, you know, um, Thomas Jefferson uh, lived on a mountaintop home called Monticello. It's just about, what, an hour and a half from downtown DC. 
And is that is it's it in Charlottesville? Yeah, Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia is. And he's actually buried there on the property of Monticello, and it's open for tours. You can go there. Another place you want to put on your bucket list. But on his tombstone at Monticello, he said, okay. I wanted to be remembered for three things. And these three things are on his tombstone. Number one, being the author of the Declaration of Independence. Number two, being the author of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedoms. This is how he revered the right to be able to worship our God. And number four, he wanted to be known as the, number three, (laughs) as the father of um, the University of Virginia. Now he married his uh, darling little Martha. He was 29 when he got married to Martha at 24. She had been married once uh, before and had a little babe and both her husband, her first husband and little babe at the age of three died. And so they were only married 10 years. They had six children, Martha and um, Thomas, and only two of those six children would grow to be adults. His two daughters, Patsy and Mary. One of the wedding presents he gave Martha was a piano and she played beautifully. And did you know that Thomas Jefferson was a violin player? And so she would play the piano and he would, I guess they'd made beautiful music together. It said that was one of the things that she was attracted to him by was his love of music. And um, she was a gracious and popular uh, hostess and and well-loved, managed their large home. And um, he would go on to say, I have lived the last 10 years in uncheckered happiness with his Martha. And it was said uh, when she was dying, um, there was a servant in the room and she heard them make a promise to each other that they would never marry. He would never marry again. and, And he did not. So can I just say there is a wonderful book. Now, Al was talking about the real Benjamin Franklin. There's, it's a series of three, the real George Washington, the real um, Thomas Jefferson, and the real Benjamin Franklin. And it's such a great read. Talks about his life with Martha. Also talks uh, about um, the controversy, especially that has come forth in the last 20 years about him fathering children from uh, Sally Hemings, one of his slaves and the illegitimate children that he had. And that was a lie. And, you know, those rumors and uh, really came forth in the last in early 1990s when um, 1998. Bill, 1998, when Bill Clinton was uh, caught with that um, sex scandal with Monica Lewinsky. And so, you know, the powers to be felt that if they could bring, you know, these rumors and these lies that had been perpetuated at the time of Thomas Jefferson forth that and make, you know, our great founders be, you know, sexual perverts and deviants, maybe what, Uh, President Clinton um, was guilty of wouldn't seem as harsh. And so, you know, there there are books that completely refute the stories that the tour guides at Monticello share about Sally Hemming and his illegitimate children that completely debunk uh, that story that they tell. And I always at this point like to refer people to really understand the, the true story behind uh, these illegitimate children that they were not Thomas Jefferson, but it was widely known that it was Thomas Jefferson's nephew. Uh, that his was, his, was it his brother? Brother Randolph. Was, was notorious for having relationships with the slaves on, on uh, at 
Monticello. And so um, Al, uh, what, 10 years ago, gave a really good presentation. It's an hour long. If you go to the thomasjeffersoncenter.com, up comes Al, and he gives a one-hour presentation entitled Slavery and, the Found and the, Our Founding Fathers, Dispelling the Smear Campaign Against the Founding Fathers. And he tells the story of this brother, Thomas Jefferson, and a reporter that started to begin to spread. Do you want to share that story? Spread the false rumors of the illegitimate children? Yeah, so what drove me to down this journey was and we all on this call tonight have heard that or believe that the constitution was inspired by God. And so what I had a hard time reconciling was that notion and the fact that these men owned slaves and that these stories followed them. And then I recognized, I realized that the Lord doesn't do his work through degenerates, hypocrites and perverts. So I did my own research and put together this, this display of uh, the founders and, and slavery. And the story really begins back during the time of Jefferson, where there was an individual by the name of James Callender, who wanted to be appointed as postmaster general of Richmond, Virginia, when Jefferson became president. James Madison was his secretary of state, and they refused this man. And he had devoted himself to pro-Republican principles and thought he was a friend of Jefferson and Madison and was very dismayed when he was told that you're not qualified, sir, for this job and we were, we're gonna have to go in a different direction. So that's when he decided to write stories of these little mulatto children that were running around on the Jefferson plantation. And of course, without even going to visit himself, saw these children and made the connection that they must be Jefferson's kids. And that's that's really how the rumor started. And if you do your own research and look at different books and, and things that have been written about it, one of the scientific things that you'll come to the conclusion about is the, the male chromosome, the Y chromosome, doesn't change from generation to generation. And so Jefferson didn't have any male descendants. Thomas didn't. One of his, his first, his son died at birth. So there was no male descendant. So they took the Y chromosome from his uncle who was named Field Jefferson. And what we found is that there was a Jefferson man that did father those children, but it could have been one of 10. And throughout history and from accounts from the slaves and people that lived at that time, it was probably Randolph because Randolph spent a lot of time with the slaves, he had mulatto children of his own. And so that's where we make the conclusion that it was probably Randolph. Yeah, thank you. And you know, um, it's interesting in, in the real Thomas Jefferson, it talks about the relationship that Jefferson had with the slaves. He was under obligation to the banks uh, to hold these slaves that he had inherited. And it talks about how they were affectionate with Thomas Jefferson. And when he would come home from his travels, they would come out to greet him. And so you get a whole different story. <laughs> right, but we wanna be clear, slavery is wrong. There's no question about it. We're not advocating for slavery, but as you do the research and study, you'll realize that the, the founders at the time the constitution was written knew that they couldn't advocate for freedom if they owned slaves. And there's actually, 
and we'll go through this in seminar two, Article One, Section Nine, talks specifically about this issue and their desire to get rid of it. Yeah. And so, you know, Thomas Jefferson, at the time that he was president and these lies were being reported in the newspaper, he really didn't refute them because he said, my friends know the truth about me and my enemies wouldn't believe it otherwise. So he just let it go. And it seemed to kind of find a life of its own again in the 1990s, particularly uh, during that Clinton scandal. So here we are, 1776, Thomas Jefferson is caught up in the spirit of independence as well. And uh, Thomas Jefferson was a member of the Virginia legislature as well as the Continental Congress. Now um, that same year in 1776, uh, a pamphlet had been written by Thomas Paine. He was an Englishman that had come over to America in 1774. And he wrote this pamphlet called Common Sense in which he advocated immediate independence. And, and it, remember it's those famous phrases that these are the times that try men's souls, summer soldiers and sunshine patriots will shrink under this crisis. It's that little pamphlet that the soldiers read around the campfires uh, uh, during uh, the crossing of the Delaware uh, in, in 1775 with George Washington's troops. And George Washington said that this little pamphlet, Common Sense, worked a powerful change in the minds of many men to, to sway them to the side of uh, freedom and they sold over 120,000 copies. Now there's only 3 million people, uh, you know, in the colonies at this point. And so that would have definitely been deemed a bestseller by uh, modern standards. And so May of um, 1776, Thomas Jefferson arrives in Philadelphia as a delegate to the Congress, but he really is quite worried that Virginia, who's been working on this constitution, is not getting it right, and he wants to be there. And he actually almost missed writing the Declaration of Independence because he requested permission to go back to Virginia to work on this new constitution uh, for that state. But a special committee was going to be called in June of 1776 to write this um, formal Declaration of Independence. And he, Thomas Jefferson, is going to be put on this committee along with John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and a few others, Brothers. and two others, uh, uh, Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston. Sherman Connecticut. from Connecticut. And Livingston from New York. Right? And, and from New York, exactly. <laughs> so, you know. I'm sorry, this is my favorite story. I, I know. I said, why am I teaching this? You should teach this, sweetie. But, um, so, you know, it often seems like the years that we're about to do something great is also the time that we feel like the darkest and we're tried the most severely. And 1776 was one of those years for Thomas Jefferson uh, because his little girl earlier in the year had died. When he left his wife, she was very ill um, in Monticello. While he was in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, his mother died in March and, and, and he was sick about, you know, not having, you know, the kind of documentation and constitution that they needed. And so he wanted to be anywhere but Philadelphia at this point. And so imagine him going back and forth and having to go to Philly again, how heavy his heart must have been as he rode his horse, but he did it. Uh, uh, 
in obedience to what he felt he knew he had to do. And so there's kind of an interesting conversation that he and John Adams are having now uh, sitting on this committee to write the declaration. Jeff Jefferson defers to Adams uh, saying, you should, you should write this. And Adams said, I will not. And Jefferson says, well, why not? And he says, I have my reasons. Reason number one, John Adams says to Jefferson, you're a Virginian and Virginians ought to be at the head of this business. And reason number two, I'm obnoxious and suspected and unpopular, and you're very much otherwise. And reason number three, you can write 10 times better than I can. And so I think this little dialogue back and forth goes to show that they didn't let egos get in the way. And so Jefferson <laughs> deferred and he said, all right, I will write this. And so for 17 days, Thomas Jefferson was holed up in a little rented room in uh, downtown Philadelphia. Now, it only took him one day to write all the grievances uh, that mostly take up the Declaration of Independence because he had already written them previously in drafts in the Virginia Constitution. But to his great anxiety, he was going to labor the next 16 days about which elements of those ancient principles he wanted to embed in the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence using this common law, Moses's law, this first model of representative government that he discerned um, in, in scripture. So at least eight of these ancient principles, you can find them in the first two paragraphs, such as self-evident truth or uh, the laws of nature and nature's God, or that our creator has made us all equal with equal rights and that these inalienable rights come from God and they can't be taken away. And uh, our most important rights are to the right to life and liberty and that be able to pursue what we want, property, and that governments should protect these rights and that government exists because of the consent of the governed. And we can alter or abolish a constitution or a government that has become tyrannical. Those are all biblical constitutional principles found in the Bible. And so he felt this great weight, probably not really even realizing, you know, the magnitude of this work, but he would later go on to say, he said, he would refer to this declaration as the holy bond of our union. And that he felt that these principles would be eternal principles, that they somehow might take us into some sort of millennial time and beyond. And so on July 4th, 1776, Congress adopted this Declaration of Independence. Now they made 60 changes to this document, but they did not delete not one single one of Jefferson's ancient principles. So one of the things they did change, Jefferson highlighted the issue of slavery that we brought up last week in terms of the first slave ship arriving in 1619 that the King said, no, you're gonna take those slaves. So he actually highlighted a grievance in that in the original draft that basically highlighted the fact that the king had imposed his will on the colonists regarding slavery. Not to throw all the blame on the king, but he definitely highlighted it. And that particular line in the final draft was taken out. So the copy, um, 
that was written was uh, um, the, the original copy that they all signed was sent to King George and that copy was lost and we don't know what happened to it, but they immediately sent uh, another copy. It was called an engrossed copy where it is actually a copy of the official document in large hand. And that is the one that the 56 signers signed. And um, you'll notice that John Hancock's signature was bigger than all the others on the declaration. And they say it, he did that so that the king could see it without his glasses, kind of a, a dig to the king. But originally Jefferson was not identified as the author because they feared retaliation. Remember these men really were signing uh, with their blood in support of this um, Declaration of Independence, knowing full well they really were signing their lives away and many their fortunes and sacred honors because if they were to be caught, they would be tried for treason and be subject to a gruesome death. And so that leads us to our last little part. Jefferson reveals the source of his ancient principles. Okay, thank you, Julini. You're welcome. Alrighty, so let's go to section eight. This is our last section. We're just gonna take a few minutes to go over this. Jefferson reveals the source of his quote unquote ancient principles. So after writing the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams were appointed to a special committee to prepare an official seal for the United States. A little bit ahead of themselves because they were really in the midst of the war. They, at, at some point, 17,000 would be part of the Revolutionary Army. I can't imagine that they really thought they were gonna win, but they did. And so they said, we need to start moving forward with putting together a seal for the United States. And they really wanted to highlight this notion of representative self-government based on their collective study of the Old Testament, where we've got Moses and the children of Israel, where the first republic is formed, where power is divided and local control reigns supreme. And then the best of the Anglo-Saxons who had practiced self-government and local control as well. So they wanted to create a two-sided seal. On one side of the seal, the children of Israel looking at a flame with Moses standing there, quite complicated. And on the other side, a picture of two of the most famous Anglo-Saxons. What are their names? Henga and Horse? Horsa. Horsa, okay. Even more complicated. Chiefs. Yeah, the two Anglo-Saxon chiefs. So the Congress, great idea, gentlemen, but I think we're gonna go with something a little more simpler. <laughs> and that depicted an eagle on one side and a pyramid on the other with that little eyeball on the top that I think it's behind most of our dollar bills, isn't mm -hmm. it? Most of our currency, Yeah. that little eyeball that's on the top. And then there's two classical Latin mottos. Do you, do you know what that eyeball is? What's the eyeball? It's the eye of the all-knowing creator. Oh, so, very good. So God is on our money. Okay, good. <laughs> and we have we have a picture of that here in, in the house, but but the eyeball follows you around the room. <laughs> so we've got so there's two classical Latin mottos. I hope I get this right. Inuit coptis, which means quote, he had favored our understanding, and then novus ordo seclorum, which is another Latin phrase, and that means new order of the ages or the beginning 
of a new age. So that is how our American seal came to be. And I will turn the time back over to Jalene to wrap up. Okay. E pluris unum. And that's, the, that's boy, we are slaughtering. You can tell we're, we have boned up on our Latin meaning out of one, out of many become one, out of many colonies, we're now going to emerge as one nation. And so the, this is on our seal. And, and, and I mean, this is the seals that are on our dollar bills, on our passports, our treaties. It's even the seal of the president of the United States is based off of this seal that they came up with here. And so Al and I have given you an overview of section two in seminar one. And so obviously these are fill in the blanks. And so we ask that, that you take maybe 15 minutes each day and just fill in a page or two and read and study because we can't go through everything in this section in order for us to uh, get through in an hour. So you have a little bit of homework each week, but I hope that, as we've studied section one and section two, I love seminar one because it reminds us that God is a God of miracles. And he used the people that he had on this earth that were seeking and that were righteous and were willing to hear his voice to do his work. And we saw that with the Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and our pilgrims. We saw that with Samuel Adams today and the genius of Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, all the English folks that felt inspired to come to this new world during this time period and, and take us up to this fateful 1776 year. Now, next year, we're going to study about next week, we're going to study about the ragtag army of um, George Washington, who is going to become our great general over the course of eight years, long, miserable years serving during the Revolutionary War, as he used farmers and unskilled laborers, young men, old boys, they all joined up this Continental Army, the war that ultimately was going to set us free. And you're going to see the miracles. We were going up against the greatest army and navy in the world. The audacity to think that we even had a fighting chance, but Thomas Jefferson or um, George Washington, uh, I, boy, I'd follow him anyway, any day. And I, I, you know, as I study these great founders, particularly George, I, you can see, you know, when they say that if more men were like George Washington, the gates of hell would, uh, would quake forever because he was a talk about a happy warrior. He was hopeful. He was courageous. He was determined. He was, he had vision and he had trust and faith that God had his back and he was fearless, just like Joan of Arc, he led from the front. And so as we study the lives of these founders and, and really get a sense of the awe and reverence by which they sacrificed their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honors, they might've been happy warriors, but you know, they, it, it was hard <laughs> and their, their way was not easy, but they definitely felt the divine hand of God uh, guiding them. Thomas Jefferson, did you know, mentions God or references God five times in the Declaration of Independence. He knew who was upholding them as he moved forward in this great work. And what, what we want you to feel as you go through this first seminar that God will do the same for us. He was a God of miracles back then. And he's a God of miracles today. I, I think we think things look pretty perilous at, 
right now in our country, but don't you think <laughs> they thought things looked just as equally bad back then? And so we can take great courage and confidence in knowing that, you know, God uses those who are willing to do his work. And, you know, he, he will be there for us as well as, as we seek his face, as it says in that scripture, and turn from our wicked ways and repent and, and turn to him. He will heal our lands. He will heal our families, our children, our marriages, our neighborhoods, our communities. And as we turn to him, we will justify the heavens for him to intervene on our behalf as we pray and as we study and as we worship and as we make our family time a high priority. You know, I don't know if you have little children or teenagers or kids that have, you know, left the nest, but we need to keep those relationships the best. We need to keep them uh, close to us. And, you know, oftentimes as we have older children now, they don't always like some of the counsel we give them. And, you know, they're, they're not quite sure if they like what mom particularly is saying. And if I haven't heard from one of my adult kids in, in a few days or a week, I, I just, I'm constantly, I know, and you more so than me, Al, we just keep them close, even if they're not within the four walls of our home. I, I still do a little daily devotional where I send out a little scripture and a quote to all the kids, even though four out of the five have been gone now this last year. And so do whatever you can to keep that family close so they know you can be of influence to them, so you can share with them what you're learning. I want you to know that all of you, as we teach each week, I, I tell my kids about you. I tell them about the classes we teach. And, you know, our kids don't always necessarily hop on and want to hear these classes, but they're kind of curious still to know what mom and dad are doing. And I just have to really commend you for wanting to show up and to study and to learn our history. And you're going to, we're going to learn the Constitution in a few weeks from now. You know, it's so important that we stay rooted in correct principles. It's dangerous when we're not because then emotionalism gets the best of us. And we've seen this over the, the last year or two with rioting and looting and burning and stealing. You know, when there's ignorance and no education, your ignorance turns to fear and then fear turns to to hate and hate turns to some of the violence that we've seen. But as we educate ourselves from the viewpoint of the founders, we get hopeful. We, we're reminded of how God, you know, can wield his, his mighty hand on the behalf of this special nation of freedom. And when we're hopeful, we're more productive and we bring about change and it reminds us to be happy warriors. And so I really love this first seminar that, that highlights these happy warriors and highlights that we shouldn't lose the faith, uh, just as our early founders uh, didn't as well. So we're going to bid you adieu for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Study ahead for section three of seminar one, the war that would set them free. And uh, with that, I think we will sign off and say goodnight. We'll st stick around and answer any questions that you may have. But thank you so much. And we'll see you next week.